Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together and study your word. We ask the Holy Spirit to guide and lead us as we look at this section of Isaiah and what you would see, have us see from in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Isaiah chapter 42, and we're continuing. This is a Messianic psalm. It very clearly talked about Jesus being the servant, opening the eyes of the blind, and that the former things would pass away. And we're going to start at verse 10. Sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise from the end of the earth. You that go down to the sea, and all therein, the isles and the habitants thereof, let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar does inhabit. Let the inhabitants of the rock sing, let them shout from the top of the mountain. Let them give glory unto the Lord and declare his praises to the, in the islands. The Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up the jealous, jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. I have long time held my peace. I have been still and remain, refrained myself. Now will I cry like a travailing woman. I will destroy and devour at once. I will make waste mountains and hills and dry up all their herbs and I will make river, rivers islands and I will dry up the pools and I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them that, and not forsake them. They shall not turn back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images and say unto molten images, you are our gods. <laughs> All right, this is very strong uh, statements from God. Be in the previous uh, verse 9, he says, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and the new things are I declare, and I shall spring, spring forth and tell them. It says, And he says, Sing unto the Lord a new song. And this is something that is, David talks a lot about this in the Psalms. When we come to God, God puts a song of joy in his children's hearts. And, you know, it really is something that's out there. I can remember, I used to want to sing all the time and still do. Just sing praises. And lots of times, just make up my own words, which drives, drives some people in my life crazy. It's like, what are you singing? I'm just singing words. <laughs> I'm just singing words. God's put a heart, song in my heart. But, you know, it's wonderful to have that lightness of heart, that joy that a song really does bring. And I love to just walk across the yard at the prison and sing a song and you know, not real loud, I'm not trying to be heard everywhere, but just quietly sing a song and just praise God. And that's one of the reasons I love the choruses that we sing. You know, the short choruses, I don't want to sing them 80 times like some church, you know, churches do. I don't want to sing them over, and, but I just like them because you sing them enough to memorize them and they give you something to sing when you're driving, you're walking. When my kids were little, we used to just get in the car and sing you know, whatever, whatever song they wanted to sing, we'd sing Christian songs as we would drive the 15, 20 minutes to wherever we were going and just sing songs. And that's one of the things they remember, just being in the car <laughs> singing. And God says, I'm going to give you a new song. Now, what is the song of the lost? Usually the oh, woe is me's. <laughs> they sing the country and western songs. You lose your, you lose your wife, your dog, your house, your car, your... <laughs> Your, your truck, you know, you lose everything, oh, woe was me. 
You know, and that's not the kind of song God gives us as his children. It's, God, you're, you're wonderful. You're in charge. You're, you're, you care. You love. And we, we end up with this whole new light song, and God gives it to us. And it says, and you will sing praise from the end of the earth, you that go down to the sea, and therein the isles and the inhabitants thereof. Now for us, this doesn't necessarily mean as much to us, but he's talking about us as Gentiles. When the Jews talk about going to the islands and the ends of the, ends of the world, they're talking about Gentiles. And God's saying he's going to give a song and praise to the Gentiles. It's very clear, especially Isaiah. Isaiah is full of the, the Gentiles were going to get to know God. Much of the prophets were, but Isaiah really talks a lot about Gentiles getting to know about God. And we talked about this. In the Pentateuch, when God gave them their rules for worship, he said, these are your rules for worship. They're for you and for the strangers that come to worship. And where would the strangers be? The, us Gentiles. That God had always intended for Gentiles to be able to worship him. The Jews were his chosen people, but their job was to bring God to the world, not set up roadblocks, which is what they did. In Jesus' day, they had a great big sign between the court of the women and the inner, in the inner court where the sacrifices were that said, no, no Gentiles allowed on penalty of death. So if you were a Gentile and crossed that line, you'd be killed. So that was how they separated. They, they totally ignored the word that said, same rules for both. Same, the Gentiles can worship. They totally you know, ignored Isaiah saying, God's going to bring a new song to the Gentiles. He is wanting to be worshipped by the Gentiles. And the Jews just, we're God's chosen people. You know, you, you, you're not. And, and, many, and there were many rabbis that taught that the Jews went to heaven and the Gentiles were created to go to hell. What makes sense if, if you're the only ones and you know, you've got to be a Jew to, to go to heaven? It makes sense. And, and that wasn't so far-fetched from the hyper-Calvinists who say that you're chosen for God and if you're not chosen for God, you can't be one of his children no matter what. You were born to go to hell. That's what the hyper-Calvinists, and Calvin himself didn't teach that, but the hyper-Calvinists say that if you are not God's elect and you're not one of his chosen, there's nothing you can do about it, wow. you're going to hell. So, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes is not something that they acknowledge. And they'll go, well, that means whoever, whoever will believe that he gives the, skill, you know, the ability to, to choose. Because they will tell you that you cannot choose God because we're so evil and so you know, bad. We cannot choose to follow God, even though God says it's our choice. You know, now, I understand, there's, I understand where they're coming from, but I don't believe it. All right? And I do know that God says that he elects us and he chooses us. Now, how does that play into our, our ability to whosoever will? I don't know. I'm not God. God will make those two, two things match with no problem. And the Jews had this idea, we're, we're born for heaven and you all, you know, everybody who's not a Jew is born for hell. This is even in our Christian, Christian world today with hyper-Calvinists hyper or that way. If you're not one of God's chosen people, there is no way that you'll ever go to heaven. Now, I understand one thing. If I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I was chosen. Now, how those two matched up, I don't know and I don't care. All I know that he says, whosoever will is his. And 
I just know that that's going to be the case. And here, he's talking about Gentiles. The Gentiles will be given a new song. The Gentiles will praise him. Verse 11, let the wilderness and the cities that lift up their voice, the, city, the villages that Kedar does inhabit, yea, the inhabitants of the rocks sing, let them shout from the top of the mountain. Have you ever really felt like shouting for God from the top of a mountain, however tall that mountain might be? Uh, you know, it's, it's really wonderful. I love to be on the top of the mountain with God, the spiritual mountaintop. It's great. The only problem is we don't stay very long on the mountaintop. And it's a good thing that we don't stay on the mountaintop because if we were on the mountaintop, we wouldn't be dealing with the, with the world. And the world drags us down. The world, you know, it, it's fun. You go to this men's retreat or a women's retreat or a big revival and you come out all on top of the world. God's in charge and and you get out on the world and start ministering to the real world. But there is times for that mountaintop experience. We need those times where we just feel, yes, God, what a wonderful, it is wonderful. You are wonderful. And shout him. Shout him from the mountaintops. We should be shouting him anyway. We should be shouting him even more in the valleys. The whole thing is we need to be shouting that all the time. Lift, lifting him up, sharing with him. To me, it is a wonderful thing when everything seems to be going bad to turn around and, God, and just say, God, I don't understand it, but you've promised it's for good. And I stand on that so much. It's gotten me through so many things in my lifetime. God, I don't understand, but you say it's for good, so I'm going to just trust in you. Now, does that make it totally easy? No, nope, you still suffer. You still go, but you, your trust now is in God. And it's very important, and we've talked about this many times, our trust has to be in the truth that God gives us, not in our emotions. Our emotions tend to lie to us. I feel good, therefore I'm happy. I feel sad, therefore everything's bad and miserable. Everything, I feel like everything's going wrong, so everything is going wrong. Now, and our feelings are not good. Many people get married because they feel like they're in love. They're, they're in the middle of infatuation, they're in the middle of lust, and they get married. Then when they have bad times, they feel like, oh, it was a, I made a mistake, I've got, to, I've got to correct this, and they get divorced. All because they make all their decisions based on feelings. And, you know, and this is something that is important for us. My life must be built on the rock of Jesus Christ, the truth, what he says. And if I make my decisions based on what he says... I have a more even keel. I'm able to go through the, with wise decisions. When I don't make decisions based on his word, I'm going to suffer. And when we don't make it, we will suffer. We will have consequences. I have consequences in my life still for things that I have done that were not based upon scripture. And, okay, God, I'm going to suffer. You know, God, maybe, maybe when you think I've suffered enough, you'll let me get out from under the consequence. But, you know, we suffer the consequences. And this is very important for us to say, God, help me make godly decisions. Help me make the decisions that are based on your word. And sometimes it's so easy to make the wrong decision because it really looks good. It really looks like the right answer. Even though God's word says don't do it, we look at it and say, well, God, you just got to understand. Look how, look how good this is. I've got a good job. I can afford to pay this bill for, for 100 years, you know. You know, it's not a problem. The, the job will cover it. And God says, but you don't know that in, in, in three years, four years, five years, that job is gone. 
then how are you going to pay that bill? And the world says, well, that job's going to go on forever. Matter of fact, you're going to get pay raises or a better job. You can afford that bill. Yeah, and God says, don't do it. Verse 12, let them give glory unto the Lord and declare his praises in the island. So here again, he's talking about Gentiles. Let them give glory. And I love this word for glory. It means to put on weight, you know, to make heavy with praise. And you know, when we give glory to God, we're telling him how good he is. Now, we already know that he's good. He knows he's good, but it helps us when we give glory. Because what we put weight on is what is important to us. You know, and this is something that's important. People will tell us, you know, if you really want to know who your God is and what's important into your life, look at two things. Your checkbook or your, or your wallet, if you're not a check user. But where do you spend your money? Who, who or what gets your money? That tells you pretty much who your God is. You know, is your percentage of money going to God or is it all going to other, other things? How much time do we put in with it? You know, where, where do we put our time in? Those two things will tell us what's important to us. And it's important for us to look every once in a while at our life and say, God, okay, what am I spending my time doing? What has slipped into my life and, and eaten up my time? Because it's real easy. Satan is so subtle. You know, you're, you're going, God, I'm giving you lots of time. I'm reading my Bible. I'm spending time with you. And then some new show comes on, and you go, you get caught up in it. And the next thing you know, you're watching it religiously every week when it's on. And then you start turning on a half hour early or an hour early just so you're there and ready, and you get caught up in another show. And then, oh, well, this is a pretty nice show at the end. The next thing you know, you're six months down the road, and you're watching TV all the time and you're not reading God's word, uh, you know, and it's real simple to fall into. And this can happen with you know, our events or our life. Somebody goes, I'm going to get in shape. And they start working out. And then all of a sudden that workout starts taking over their life. And I've known lots of guys that do this. Start lifting, out, lifting weights you know, just to get into a little bit of shape. And the next thing you know, they're working three, four hours a day on their weights, running, riding bikes, you know, being careful of what they eat. And it becomes all-encompassing. Everything is about their weight, and their exercise started out good. And this is something Satan uses a lot. Oftentimes, he'll use something that's good to get us wrapped up and away from God. He can even use church attendance for that. God, I just got to go to church. You know, I, I know I need to go to church more, God. Yes, okay, you got it. And then Satan says, well, you know, you got to be at everything. Don't worry that your family's sick and they need you to go to the hospital. Be, be a church. You know, it doesn't matter that your friend needs help. You know, get to church. And, be, and yes, church is a great thing, but it can become something that is not good if we're not careful. And it could even be something as easy as reading the Bible. You know, got to get it done. Got to get it done. Oh, got to do more. Got to do more. A lot of people use that excuse. They, they don't like me. They hurt me. They, you know, it's only one person in the church that, you know, out of the whole church doing things like that. But, and people give get upset. It's not just, it's just anything. You know, they don't love me. They don't care. They, didn't, they weren't nice to me. It can be any number of things that happen, and people use any number of excuses. That person looked at me wrong. They, they don't like me. Yeah, they didn't say hi to me. And that all is important. What will keep us from being following God? Just anything that we will let can do it. It's got to be looking at God. 
And it says, they will declare his praise in the islands. Verse 13, the Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. What a picture of this of God standing, standing up to attack. It says, he shall go forth as a mighty man, a strong warrior. And one thing we look at, especially in this time that he's talking about, mighty men were well known for killing you know, hundreds of people in battle, just single men, you know, without machine guns. <laughs> These guys would just stand in the middle, and they were just mighty. So when they say he's standing up like a mighty man, a mighty warrior, you look at David's mighty men killing 20, 30, 100 people in battle, and that was what made them mighty. This is the picture that God's, God's going up, and no enemy can prevail against him. And he shall stir up jealousy, and this is the word for jealousy that is good jealousy. He's not going to let anybody else steal the affections of his bride. And this is good jealousy. Now, jealousy gets out of hand when somebody gets so jealous that they don't let their, their spouse get out of their sight. Well, you know, somebody, somebody might want to make a play on you, and you might just respond, so you can't go. Okay, that's a lot of mites and a lot of, lot of problems, and if you're that jealous, you've got some problems. Now, if you're seeing somebody actually making a play for that person, that's another thing. That's when jealousy actually comes into play. And God says, I am a jealous God. I am not going to let anybody steal your, your affections from me. And now, we do it ourselves so often, and he'll try hard to say, quit paying attention, you know, pay attention to me. But there is a real and valid jealousy. And God says he, is a he will let jealousy come up, and he will fight. He will fight, and nothing's worse than honest jealousy in, in to defend somebody. When you see somebody actually, you know, trying to steal the affections of your, of your, your spouse and you're going, no, this is not going to happen. I'm going to fight. Physically, emotionally, mentally, whatever it might be, you get into a warlike mode and that's what God says. All these idols that we were talking about, I am not going to let these idols take over. I'm not going to just stand around and let your affections be stolen. You know, it is important for us just to step back and say, God, help me to love these people in spite of whatever they do. And God does love us, and it's amazing his love for us. Now, he goes after Satan, he goes after the attacks, and he tries to get in us a little undisciplined, but he loves us so much, he's not going to let us go off too far. And I kind of have to picture it, you know, when your kids are little, you're near a busy road, you hold onto their hands with, you know, with, you know, for all you have, and you're not going to let them go no matter how they pull because they're too close to the road. And you don't run them running into the road. Now, if you're out in the field, you let them go. You let them run around. And what is our reaction? How do we react? And it needs to be godly. And it's so easy for it not to be a godly reaction. It really is easy for that to happen. I have a long time held my peace. I have been still and refrain myself. Now I will cry like a travailing woman. I will destroy and devour at once. This is the picture of when God finally decides to start moving. And this is ultimately his last day of moving. This is, this is at the end of the tribulation period when he comes and he conquers and starts setting up the world. But God does this all the time in our life. He lets us only go so far and he holds his peace and eventually he says, Enough is enough, and moves out. With Israel, he did it several times. You know, with the world at the days of Noah, 
He destroyed the entire world except for Noah and his family because he'd had enough. Your sin has come before me. It's gone. It's over. Sodom and Gomorrah got so evil, so bad, that God destroyed the entire valley. He, he went to Nineveh. Jonah went to Nineveh, got them an extra 180, 200 years by preaching to them, and they repented, but God still brought judgment on their town for their evilness. All through the book of Judges, we see God watching his people go into sin and sending judgment on them so they will come back. You know, this is what God does, and he does it even in our lives. He lets us have enough slack, and we get out there to the end of the slack, and he kind of pulls back on the rope and says, uh, you're supposed to be over here. And if we don't listen, he sends judgments and sends hardship. And this is why I say, whenever we are going through a hard time, the first thing we do need to look at is, God, have I done something that deserves this? Usually, that's the case. Usually it's the case that we have done something and, and we're suffering the consequences and we say, God, forgive me for what I did and help me get through the, help me endure these consequences. If it's not, and we can't really pick, pick something that is our consequence for it, then we just go, God, you're putting me through some test, help me see the test and get through this test. And so it's very important to look at it and figure out what it is. But God says, I will only refrain so long before I come out. And then, you know, and he says, I will cry like a travailing woman and destroy and devour at once. But it says here, God is going to move. And you can picture this. We don't do it as much in our day and age with rifles and everything, but in the old days when they attacked, they screamed and hollered because it was hand to hand. And even in, even in our military, when they go to hand to hand, it is a lot of yelling and screaming because you're trying to startle the enemy, you're trying to scare them. You know, I'm, I'm meaner, I'm stronger, I'm louder, I'm going to take you apart, and this is the day that, you know, in that day, that was all there was. Uh, yes, you shot the arrows, you know, there would be a hail of arrows coming in as the people would run across the valley screaming at you while you're dodging the arrows that are falling from the sky, and then all of a sudden the enemy would fall upon you with their loud screams. And this is a picture that God's saying, I'm going to yell, I'm going to holler, I'm going to make noise, you know, uh, as I make this attack. People are going to know it's me. You're going to know that it's me. <laughs> and, you know, it's really fun sometimes when we look and say, God, what are, what are you doing in my life? I may not like what he's doing in my life, but I get that to then go, I guess, yeah, God, I deserve that. Thank you, thank you, God, that you cared enough to discipline me and get me out of that. And, you know, that ultimately is what it's about. If God did not love us, he would not discipline us. He would not bring us back to, to him. He'd just say, oh, well, yeah, go ahead and go to hell. Go ahead and live in bad consequences. Li live hell on earth, you know, you know live, live terrible on earth. He goes, no, I don't want you to live that way. He wants to go back to what we started with, a song in our heart that's shouting on the mountaintops and praising him. And if we're down the other direction, it's like, oh, this is miserable. Who wants to be in a battle all the time? And this is where he's at. And... It says that he will devour and de destroy at once. And this literally means to lay waste quickly. <laughs> you know, this is God's part. He's going to say, all together make this destruction. I will make a waste mountains, hills, and dry up the herbs, and I will make rivers, islands, and I will dry up their pools. Now, this is something God can do. Yeah, he can take the mountains down, he can take the hills down, he can get rid of the rivers, he destroys the, the, the uh, herbs and the food. 
This is the power of God. When God moves, everything can be destroyed. And at the end of the millennial kingdom, after the white throne judgment, God's going to have one last destruction of this world. He's just going to let go of all the atoms that he holds together. You want to talk about a nuclear explosion? We talk about one little hydrogen atom producing huge bombs. God's going to let every atom in creation loose at the same moment. That will be a mighty explosion. And he's going to create everything all brand new for us with no sin, no, no disease, and start all over again. Do we realize how powerful God is and how strong he is and how well he can protect us? Usually not. Usually we get to this point where we go, God, you know, I just got tired of waiting. I had to go do something. And that's usually when we get in trouble because we go out and do it the day before God was all set to move and we make a mess out of everything. Uh, we go out and we say something that we're not supposed to say and make a bigger mess out of it and stir the pot and make it last longer than it should have. You know, and we've seen it, you've heard it. I've counseled enough people and going, you really need to go make an apology to that person, just tell them you're sorry, and then they show up to that person and they rip them, rip them to shreds before they even get to say, I'm sorry. Because they're just so mad at them, they're, not gonna, they're gonna take it in their own hand. They're gonna make that person pay. Now that person who was all set to apologize now leaves totally angry and they're now angry again for another long period of time. And, Try to talk that person to going back and apologizing? Uh, not unless they're very spiritual and very willing to obey God and usually are not at that point. And we need to be so careful. It is so easy to stir the pot, to do things that aren't going to help matters any. Uh, that Satan bruised Jesus' heel and Jesus crushed the serpent's head. He got victory. Now he's still out there angry and battling and knows it but he knows he's defeated but he's still trying hard because Satan has always tried to destroy Israel and we've explained why before Jesus was born he was trying to destroy him so that Jesus would the Messiah would not be born because he had to be of Abraham's seed he had to be of David's seed so he always was trying to kill all of Israel and specifically David's family after Jesus was born he needs he's trying to destroy Israel because Israel is all about the end-time prophecies and so if they can get rid of Israel, there is no end-time prophecies, and then he can turn to God, see, you were wrong, you didn't know the future. So that is what he's going on. Now, God's not going to let him win. He won't win. It may look like he's doing a you know, bang-up job. He's done it through many people trying to kill the Jews, and he's hurt the Jews significantly on more than one occasion, Hitler killing three million Jews you know, and others, you know, pretty much decimated their ranks, but they were not wiped out and they won't be wiped out. And it says, God's gonna do all these things. And then in verse 16, I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths where they have not known. I will make the light, darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. Specifically the blind that he's talking about, this whole section has been about Gentiles. He's taken the Gentiles by ways they don't know. And this is important for us to understand. The Bible is written by Jews to Jews. And we as Gentiles have to begin to understand what God says. And this whole thing I've been doing in the last couple of weeks about baptism. Baptism was a Jewish thing. 
You got baptized because you were choosing a new way of living. Gentiles didn't just jump up and say, hey, I just got saved, I gotta get baptized. They had to be told about baptism and what it meant so they would get baptized. And it was not natural to them. They were the blind, they needed to be led into that. You know, when we bring in and say, God's rules are these, God's the creator. You tell that to the Gentile, what do you mean a creator? Even in our day, tell it, to a, tell it to a Gentile, somebody who's not a follower of God, what do you mean a creator? We know that everything just magically happened uh, four million years ago, life, life popped up into existence, and after a great big explosion of nothing created everything, and then life all of a sudden just exploded out of the earth, and, and now we've come to us. So what are you talking about a creator for? Jews are believers in their, in their mindset. In reality, many Jews are unbelievers. All right. Uh, and especially in our day and age, most of the Jews are, almost, are, are at least agnostic, if not full-fledged atheist. So, but as far as Isaiah is speaking, they're talking about Gentiles. <laughs> All right. But he's taking the blind, so we can even make it unbelievers in general. Yeah, the, those that don't, don't know him, he's taking them in places that they don't understand. It's easier for a Jew to accept God because he's halfway there to begin with if he's a, a true, true believer. Same thing with somebody growing up in the church. They're halfway there you know, until they make their decision. They're halfway there. They know that there's a God. They know that he's the creator. They know that they're a sinner. And they just haven't taken that step to say Jesus is the answer. Uh, so, but that's also a dangerous place to be because you know all these things. If you don't make them your, your decision, it's a dangerous place to be. And God is saying, I'm taking you unbelievers in ways that you don't know. The hardest thing to do for a Gentile, an unbeliever, is to bring them into the fact that God has a plan for them, that he's the creator, that he has rules in their life. Now, we're not going to go back and say, okay, you've got to keep all 613 laws, Jewish laws, you know, because some of them are just ceremonial laws. They really are. They're just appointing to Jesus. Most of them are still good. You know, it is a wise thing to eat kosher because the unkosher things are not good for us. Now, that's a really sad thing because I like my shrimp, I like my catfish, I like my, you know, I like my shellfish. I, you know, I semi-like pork some of the times, but I love my bacon, I love my ham. And so we look at it and say, God, you have a reason for this as well. It wasn't just to make everybody weird and strange. You know, and we as Christians are weird and strange to the world anyway. We'll make darkness light. How do we get light? From God's word. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No life comes to the Father except by me, and he is light. What, what was the very first thing that God created in the, in our, in our, on the first day of the universe? Let there, let there be light. Even before there was a sun or a moon, he said, let there be light. He is the source of light. And he is the one that when he comes into our life, he starts shining light into our, into our own life. And he says, I'm going to bring light. I'm going to lead them in a way. I'm going to lead them in a way that they go. And that's, that's significant because blind people don't go places that they don't know. It's, you know. Unless they're being very carefully led, they don't like to go places because, number one, it's hard to get back if somebody was just to leave them because they don't know where they're at. You know, it's amazing how well they can get around when they know, know someplace, but they don't like to go places where they don't know. And he says, by the way, I'm going I'm to be your light. And I, and I think about this. 
So many times I hear people when they become a Christian and their words are usually something along, I was trying to read the Bible the week before, the day before, and I couldn't make heads or tails out of it, and all of a sudden, everything made sense. The light of the God shone in, and he says, here it is. Your eyes are open. The spirit all of a sudden says, hey, I know what this means. You know, you have a spirit alive in you, and all of a sudden, light shines. And it's really, and this is a kind of a metaphorical light, but it is also true. How many times you've been trying to make a decision, you go before God, you do a little prayer, and all of a sudden it is like a light comes on. And it is so obvious what you're supposed to do. All right, God, I was really praying about what to do, and wow, all of a sudden the light is there and the, the path is clear, and you're speaking to me. And it says he makes the crooked thing straight. The path that was all obscured, he just straightens out in front of you. It's kind of like the, the, some of the movies you see where there are guys looking down the road and all of a sudden this crooked path just straightens out and the light shines on it. Yeah. Literally what he's talking about. The light comes in and the path straightens out and God says, this is your way. Walk here. And only God can do something like that. You know, the movies and, and stories make a play on it, but this is where it's coming from. The idea of God being in charge and making the decision to go that direction and he says, these things will I do unto them and not forsake them. I love that God will not forsake us. We may try to forsake him. We may try to go our own way. But God will not forsake us. This is an answer to those who will say, you can lose your salvation. You chose God. You can choose not to follow God. God will not forsake me. I am in his hand. He will not let go of me. He gave me eternal life, and he's not an Indian giver. Saying, okay, I'm giving you eternal life. Nope, you don't deserve eternal life anymore, so you don't have eternal life. Oh, oh you're doing right again. Okay, you can have eternal life. Nope, you're not doing right. You don't have eternal life. By definition, that would not be eternal life. That would be temporary life. I give you temporary life as long as you deserve it. We need to keep this in mind. This is one of the reasons I will be very strong on the fact that once you are saved, you are saved. Now, if you can walk away from God with no conviction, no idea that you're doing wrong and being convicted, then you weren't saved in the first place. You may have looked like it. You may have acted like it. You might have even thought you were, but you weren't if you can walk away from God without conviction. You can't lose it. Now, a lot of times they will say, what these people will say to you is, well, the Bible says that if you are a liar and a thief and a an adulterer and a homosexual, then you will not enter into heaven. And that is a true statement, but you've got to read it in the Greek that says, continuously habit of life, living this lifestyle. And you can live that lifestyle without having conviction in your life. You're not his child. And what's even more, you never were his child. <laughs> okay? Because if you can lose something that is everlasting, then it was not everlasting in the first place. And here's this thing. God says, I'm not going to forsake you. I will not forsake you. Once you're in my... And then Jesus is even better. I'm holding you in my hand, and the Father is holding me in his hand. So if I somehow manage to jump out of Jesus' hand, I jump right into God's hands. And God's hands are just a little bit bigger than the universe, so there's no way I'm going to jump out of his hands. He holds the whole universe in his hands, so... You know, if somehow I manage to jump out of Jesus' hands, I'm just jumping into God's hand. 
we need to be able to understand this. If I make my decision for him, I'm his. And that's good news. I want that to be true because I can mess up my life real easy. All right? I want it to be true that he is not going to let go. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man suppose. So if I didn't do anything to become saved, there's nothing I could do to become unsaved because he gave me eternal life. And that's my big thing. You know, if you want to believe that you can lose your salvation, tell me how you lose something that's eternal. Uh, so God, if I can lose something that God said was eternal life, then God lied to me. And if God lied to me, then I can't trust anything he said. And therefore, why am I following him? It's just a logical trail. If I can lose my eternal life, God lied to me because it's not eternal. And if he lied to me, where else did he lie to me? And why am I trusting him for my eternity? That's a dangerous path to walk down. down and yet many do it. And why? Pride. I have to have done something to earn my salvation or at least keep my salvation. And if I'm not doing it, then, then where am I? And that's the same question because people will tell you, well, you Christians have this real simple faith. All you believe is you believe in God and he takes you to heaven. Yes. Well, that's just too easy. Must not be that easy. You're not willing to do it. It's so easy. You're not willing to do it. So that must mean it's pretty hard to do because you have to give up your pride. And that's the problem. Anybody who thinks it's too easy to get saved by faith is because they're too prideful. And those that are believing you can lose your salvation, they'll never admit it, but they are, pride is their issue. I have got to do something to keep my salvation because, you know, God, it's too easy. It's too easy. You know, you're, you're saying otherwise I can go out and sin. And that's, what we're, and that's what we're accused of all the time. Once saved, always saved. Well, you're just saying that somebody can get saved and sin. I'm going, I'm telling you that you won't sin if you really believe this because of your love for God and your, in your humility that he loves you enough to keep you. You're not going to go out and sin when God lives in you. Yeah, I had somebody tell me one day, well, if, if you die while you're, you're backslidden, you go to hell. I'm going, no, because you're saved. Even if you're backslidden on purpose, as long as you're saved. And this is why the key to this thing is, and I say this over and over, are you sinning and have no conviction in your life? If that's true, then you need to look at your life and say, am I really his child? Am I really saved? All right, one last verse here. We're going to try to get done. They shall, be turn, they shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images that say to molten images, you are our God. So God says, I am going to judge them. They are going to be turned away from it. And especially if we become his. And I think this may be that he's saying a good thing in this one because he's talking about Gentiles. Most Gentiles and unbelievers follow idols. And he says, they, who? The ones that he's defending. That would be my opinion of the day that he's talking about. They shall be turned back. They shall be turned around in repentance to turn back to God. And they, and they will be greatly ashamed of their trust in their old idols. And we all have had idols in our life. Even as Christians, sometimes we have idols in our life. But before we're saved, we definitely had idols in our life. Usually it's us. Okay, usually it was us. I'm all that's important. But it could be any other number of idols, my sports, my work, my education. Uh, but you notice the my in all of those? 
it's usually me as the very center of all my idol, idol worship. You know, there's little other bits and pieces. I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to my TV idol because I want to be entertained. So really, who am I setting up? It's not even the TV. It's I. You know, I, I am being entertained to death. I am spending all my time playing this game or writing this book or, or exercising or whatever the idol in my life is this, but it's something that makes me feel good. So the I is really what my idol and almost always is me. Even in their day, their idol really was them. How did you worship the god of fertility? You had orgies. The people who went there are the ones that enjoyed the sexual activity and they were pleasing themselves. You know, how did you worship in the god of power? You gave up everything and, and, and spent all your life in business and in business world acquiring wealth and power. How did you, you know, how did you get it, you know, your other different activities? The idols, what they were celebrating, the way you worshiped them was to really become lascivious in the act of what they were. So if your idol was the god of thieves, your worship was stealing. And you were worshiping at that god because you liked stealing. And so you really were satisfying the I. You know, I'm doing what I like. I'm doing what I have fun to, you know, doing. And usually when we slip as a Christian, we're, doing, we're lifting ourselves up and doing what we have for pleasure. Whatever that we, whatever that pleasure might be. We're lifting ourselves up and saying, I'm going, to be pleased. I'm going to be pleased. What was Satan's sin that got him kicked out of heaven? I will be like the Most High. I will sit on the throne of, on, the, on the mountain of the north. I will be like God. Seven I wills. All I. And that has been mankind's problem ever since. The first sin was it looked good to her eyes and she took the fruit because she saw that it was something to desire to make one wise. All about the eye. And she turned it over to Adam and said, take and eat. You know, I has always been the problem in our world, in our life. But it's every, everything taken outside of God is, is bad. Now, this gets you into a dangerous area. If you're bowed down before, you know, an idol of self and, and self, and you're doing it without any conviction, then you have to say, do I know God? Jesus said there will be many in that day that will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And they list a bunch of righteous activities. And God says, and Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. All right. Just saying that you're a Christian does not mean you're a Christian. You're going to have to have some fruit in your life to say that you're a Christian. You're going to have to have God speaking into your heart when you do evil. If you can go out and sin and not have any conviction in your life, then you've got some problems. Now that's conviction maybe pretty deep in your life if you've been backslidden long enough. Yeah, you keep covering it and you keep pushing it down. It may be very deep and hard for God to, to get your attention, which means you, but you can think back, I did have feel bad feelings about this and you know that you're his. But if you've been able to sin without having any problem with it, you're not his child, plain and simple. You didn't lose your salvation. You were never his to begin with. And another thing when God tells us, another reason that we know that salvation is eternal is because God uses the terms of adoption in a Roman set, setting. A Roman child who was adopted could not be un, disinherited. 
So God uses that same term when he says we are adopted under the Greek, Greek ideas. He says, I can't get rid of you. I, I chose you. You're mine. We're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for everything we've uh, covered and talked about. We thank you for your guidance and leading. We ask you to bless this evening in Jesus' name. Amen.